This is Daniel Barron. Welcome back to The Winemaker's Journey. On today's episode, I chat with Priyanka French, the winemaker at Signorello Estate in the Napa Valley. In this interview, Priyanka speaks about her internships at the Hospice de Bone and Cognac, her stint as a barrel rep and journalist in India, and her time in Napa at Dalavale and Signorello. I think you will find her journey fascinating. Let's get to episode seven. Today on Winemaker's Journey, I am pleased to welcome Priyanka French, the winemaker at Signorello Estate in Napa, California, where she is focused on precision viticulture, production of their restrained style of wine, and construction of the 28,000 square foot winery and caves as Signorello rebuilds after the October 2017 fire. Priyanko brings a diverse education and work history that spans four continents and a wine range of influences. I think it will be fascinating to hear from her how these elements have shaped her current winemaking philosophy. Let's begin our talk with winemaker Priyanka French. Hi, Priyanka. Thank you for joining us. Hi, Dan. Thank you for having me. Such an honor to be here. Oh, thank you. So, you know, I think to put things in context... Would you, in your own words, describe your winemaking style as you currently see it? You know, that's always a a tough question, but I think uh, there's three elements of focus that I I like to bring to to the table. One, of course, is respecting the terroir and the, the property, you know, the fruit, kind of the expression of the fruit is shaped uh, tremendously by its location, by its rootstock, by the clone, by the soil type, and uh, to kind of be aware and uh, express those nuances of a soil and of an, of, a, of an area is something that's very important to me. Uh, other than that, I would say wines that show concentration and balance are important. So uh, wines that have a depth and you know a quality of complexity to them, but at the same time a balance between tannins acidity and structure um so i would i would probably say a structured balanced wines my winemaking style dancing along the razor's edge yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) everything needs to line up perfectly (laughs) so one of the themes on this podcast is how winemakers develop their own personal aesthetic and and i like to think that we all are standing on the shoulders of the people that went before us so your background is particularly interesting you were born in india that's right uh so how did you first get interested in wine um it was kind of a uh, life event so i was doing my undergrad with a focus on food engineering and technology and in our first year itself, because it was a relatively new field in Mumbai and in India, not a lot of people, you know, were in the uh, were really dealing with a lot of these kind of cross science fields at that time. Uh, we did a field trip to Sula Vineyards, which is located in the Nasik region, and uh, it just happened that the visit to that vineyard happened after a long day of first going to a dairy processing plant, which was very smelly, <laughs> um, and a um, biscuit or a cookie-making uh, uh, production facility after that, which, you know, was interesting, but didn't really blow me away. And at the end of the day, we ended up at Sula Vineyards. It was harvest in India, so it's on the northern hemisphere, so about earlier time in the year. We um, walked through the cellar, you know, everything smelled great, tanks were fermenting, and then we ended up in the tasting room, looking over the vineyards onto the lake at the end of the property. And, you know, you'd have to be made of stone to not fall in love with a setting like that. So it kind of stayed 
in the back of my head, I knew it was something that was fascinating, something I wanted to know more about. And when I was in my third year of undergrad, I kind of decided to fuel myself in that direction and really get after winemaking. And so you finished your, your bachelor's in India, in Mumbai, and then you went to Davis? Is that is that how it went? That's right. Yeah. I, uh, Davis was actually not even on my radar for a while. I was uh, looking to go to University of Adelaide in Australia or um, to one of, two of the universities, one in Montpellier and the other one in Bordeaux, uh, because those, you know, in my searches, that's what kind of came up. And my uncle, who was one of my first mentors in this industry, if you will, he comes from the food and beverage and the hotel industry background in Mumbai, put his foot down and said, you know, you have to apply to UC Davis if you're going to go in for winemaking. And so just to appease him, to get his support towards this uh, career choice, I chose to uh, put in my application and heard back positively from UC Davis and, you know, no looking back after that point. So you you got your master's at Davis, yeah. So who did you work with there? Uh, you Linda worked with Bassan. Linda, yeah, yeah. yeah. She yeah. was my primary master's uh, advisor. And so you know, one of my themes is to talk about mentors. So what? And you know, and one of the things I think about with mentors is what we learn from them, and then how we take what we learn and and reinterpret it and carry it forward into our professional lives. So how would you synthesize that, that uh, aspect of your career? What did you, what do you feel Linda taught you? And, and, and then how did you, how do you carry that forward into your everyday? Linda, I mean, she's a force to, to be reckoned with anyone who's gone to Davis or has, you know, attended a seminar knows that, and I uh, tracked Linda down quite early, actually, even before I formally came to California. I emailed her while I was in st- still in Mumbai because I was reading about all these professors and just her background and the kind of research she had done, especially with microbiology, was absolutely interesting for me. It was fascinating. And so I reached out to her very early on, requesting to be taken on in her department as a master's student, and she agreed and it's, um, it was just so fascinating to work with her. She is one of those people that is so inclusive in her department. We were um, sitting down almost every week to discuss not just my project, but every other research project that was going on under her department. She has a tremendous attention to detail. Uh, she looks at everything over and over again and uh, she's one of those people that you can walk into her office you know with a joke with a problem or with an absolute disaster and she'll just smile and help you figure it out through it so uh, definitely keeping a level head through the tough times is something Linda Linda made sure that the department was well equipped to do yes she she's as you say, a, a real force to be reckoned with. And she, d- she did wonderful work at, uh, at the department. And so your study, I don't even know what metabolomic <laughs> profiles are. That, that's very esoteric stuff. <laughs> so you're looking at, at uh, ethanol yields uh, with different yeast strains in Chardonnay. But what, what's that first word? So that basically is an analysis of what's happening inside the yeast cell during fermentation. So you're not just analyzing the compounds that exist in the juice as it converts to wine. You're actually looking at the difference in the compounds within the yeast cell. And that 
eventually helps you trace back to trying to understand which pathways are more active or less active or get um, influenced under certain conditions. So we were looking mainly to see what exactly the yeast cell, how it exactly the yeast cell reacts, especially under difficult fermentation conditions. So we had uh, three different strains. We had a high performer, which means a strain that chooses to convert the sugar to ethanol at a faster rate and is able to do it even over a higher percentage of alcohol. Uh, a low performer, which, you know, kind of the strains that, would you, that you would use more for the beer side of the industry. And then what we had was a stuck uh, strain. And that was a strain for some reason, no matter what we did, it always got stuck. And so we tried these three different strains across the different juice profiles that we had, which ranged in nitrogen. And we saw that a lot of the uh, pathways that we found directly related to how these yeast cells were able to perform under the different conditions. It was um, a lot of uh, work. We had, uh, I think it was seven replicates per combination of yeast and juice so a lot of data a lot of excel sheets a lot of uh, statistics but we got some really cool results out of it oh, that's always gratifying yeah <laughs> yeah and you know one of the things that we don't realize going in is is master's work isn't required to actually show results it's <laughs> more the it's so to have a project where you actually get some answers it's it makes it even better Absolutely. yeah so i mean one of the things that intrigued me on your resume was the the wine writer phase and you know i think it's something that uh, most people not in the business don't realize how much writing there is in being a, a winemaker for an estate like like yours in yellow in my case silver oak and Tumi. i mean i found myself writing copy especially in the winter it seemed like writing a lot of copy so so you enjoy the, the language and you enjoy writing and and uh that's something that you when you were you went back to india and worked for demtos correct was that right out of out of davis it was uh, a little after Davis. Um, so after, after I graduated uh, Davis, I went to Burgundy and Cognac and then to New Zealand. And after that, ended up in India. So almost about a year after I left Davis was when I was back in India. And the wine writing aspect kind of evolved around that time. I've always loved languages. It's uh, Reading is something my father inculcated in me at a very young age. Um my parents just retired and my mother just found out our stash of books that we'd been hiding in my dad's office all these years because we'd always sneak, sneak out and buy books. Was she not that into uh, reading? No, she loved reading, but she, uh, you know, just didn't think we needed as many books as we, <laughs> as we currently own. But uh, it inculcated a love for language very early on in my age, in my, in my life and even in undergrad and high school, I used to contribute to the school magazine. I just, I find myself more expressive through words than vocally. And um, and so when I came back, wine writing kind of came as a two-pronged approach. One was to share the knowledge that I had gained in the last two years, of course, coming more from a technical background. And secondly, it was an educational experience for myself. So I got to meet some really great people and attend some wine tastings and uh, kind of evolve an idea or a concept out of that based on the technical background that I had at that point. It was uh, a lot of fun. Good. Yeah. 
How would you describe the sommelier community in Mumbai? Is it fairly fairly sophisticated? Are there, is there a, a, a very evolved restaurant uh, scene? I would say it's currently exploding. Um, I mean, of course, this year and with everything with COVID has uh, slowed that down sure. a little bit. But if you were to compare the restaurant scene and sommeliers and wine education when I decided to get into the industry compared to now, I would say there's been a significant shift um, with a priority on wine education, with an access to wine, with um, an actual community that has slowly started building up. And we now have our first master of wine, Sonal Holland. She got her certification just, I think it was last year. And so, you know, slowly and steadily it's it's building. I think consumption is increasing and interest in wine is increasing and every time I go back I'm more excited to see a wine list at a new restaurant or you know wine options even as a glass pour or something so I think uh, we're getting there slow and steady. Mm-hmm. COVID aside how often do you, do you get back? As often as I can. <laughs> <laughs> now that we're in Napa Valley my uh, parents prefer and they're retired so they prefer the reverse journey quite a bit they find napa very relaxing so they've definitely been coming out here uh, more than i've been going back home but if i had a choice i'd go back as often as i could yeah, yeah. okay so we've got you back in india you're working for demptos that that was interesting because with your passion for for winemaking that 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 must have been an interesting decision to step away from day-to-day production and and uh represent uh, barrels, represent a supplier. Was that a difficult uh, decision for you? It wasn't a difficult decision, but I was definitely uh, persuaded correctly. (laughs) It would be one way to look at it. So how it actually evolved was very interesting. When I was at Hospice de Bonne in Burgundy, uh, Jean-Francois, who is the founder and owner of Francois, F- um, Tonnellerie Francois Frere, which right. under its you know umbrella owns now multiple cooperages, yep. was very good friends with uh, Chef Roland Mas, who's the winemaker at Hospice de Bonne. So they, he would come to the winery almost every week for you know a cup of tea, a cup of tea, a cup of pastis, a glass of wine, bottle of wine, and so I got to know him uh, pretty well because of that and. When he found out that I was moving next to Cognac uh, to continue working in France, he put me in touch with his son, who manages Tonnellerie Demtos in Bordeaux. This is Jerome. This is Jerome, yeah. yeah. And so I, when I went out to Cognac and finally decided to go visit Bordeaux one weekend, I reached out to him, and he ended up meeting me um, in downtown Bordeaux, along with Francois Vitas, who is the CEO for Demtos. What I didn't know was that it was uh, it was an interview. I didn't realize this at the time, but we uh, got along really well. And I was very set. I was very intent on working in India. It was something that was important to me. The only reason I really left was because wine education wasn't as available in India and not to the caliber that it was at all of these other institutions. And so... And are opportunities fewer for women in India in in winemaking? Um, I wouldn't say so. In in all of the experiences I've seen going back, especially I've seen quite a few uh, women in the winemaking, like on the production side. Um, of course, there aren't you know as many wineries as there are out in Napa Valley, but I would say that. Um, 
there's been a, a pretty good percentage of women that are involved in the industry for sure. It's very encouraging to see. Yeah. Um, yeah. Something that you know, I was very excited to to go in and see so many such a balanced group of people working at the winery. Um, but uh, so they going back to what Jerome and Francois had planted, they kind of came up because they kept asking. They said, "Okay, so you're going to." New Zealand, and then what are you going to do after New Zealand? And uh, my answer was, well, you know, I don't really know right now. I'm maybe go back home, see if I can get a job in India, or you know, figure it out. And uh, they kind of jumped and they said, what if while you're trying to figure it out, you know, you can do some background work for us? And so the conversation kind of started from there. And when I thought about it, it was a fantastic opportunity to go back and. To go there as a product supplier and an educator was huge because a lot of these producers were more comfortable talking to me. You know, of course, I wasn't looking for a job. I wasn't there to be competitive. I was there to assist, and we did. We did a lot of oak-based trials, not just for barrels, but for oak alternatives and just education seminars to explain the differences between the source of the oak, the toasting process, the, e- the seasoning process, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And so it gave me an opportunity to really get an in-depth idea of the wine industry in um, 2012, which is when I went back, uh, as well as uh, a little bit of the spirits industry as well. And so mm. what I learned from that was I just I had so many questions at the end of it, and I realized I just needed to keep learning before I could go back and contribute and and so i um after a few months of doing that and establishing demtos in india i chose to keep forging on the harvest you know hemisphere hopping journey and went back to new zealand for another internship so you at post post davis you did uh four because you were southern hemisphere hopping then you were hospice de bon so you did four Four different internships. Um, so uh, one, while one when I was at Davis at Louis Martini, that's right. I took yeah. uh, fall quarter off, and it kind of worked out because they ended up donating juice for my master's project. So it was a bit of work experience, a bit of actual schoolwork at the same time. So there was that hospice to bone um, cognac too. It wasn't. Uh, really a harvest it was more on the aging and the blending side of cognac which I thought was very interesting we uh, studied specifically how the percentage of the still wine that is made before it's distilled for cognac ends up shifting the compounds that you get through the distillation process so it was more of a research-based work that I did in cognac as well and then um, two in New Zealand before I came back to California so about I lost count. Yeah. <laughs> so Hospice de Bon must have been exciting. Oh, it was incredible. I mean, I pinched What vintage myself. was that? That was 11? Tw- 2011, yes. Yeah. 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 How did you... Uh, that's That's got to be a story. How did you swing that? Um, you know, I, uh, I don't really know. Davis has uh, a lot of connections uh, with Burgundy, especially because of Pascal, who has been kind of the rep between... Um, 
the university in Dijon and, and UC Davis for a number of right. years now at this point of time. And so he came out to do a few interviews. I, I didn't get the Taste to Van scholarship, but I think, you know, someone thought it was interesting enough and put me in touch with someone who then sent an email and Professor Waterhouse came in the picture and, you know, one thing led to the other. And next thing I know, I'm on a flight to Paris. It was great. <laughs> so the Hospice de Bonne is getting different parcels that have been contributed for for the for the the famous hospital. Mm -hmm. And then then there's a cellar where you're actually vinifying uh, these wines from all over the top top parcels of burgundy right yeah so the hospital has been around since the early 1400s it was kind of the only just getting started <laughs> new newbie um and they they kind of started out as a place to bring the patients in that could no longer be cured and the only way to really cure patients in you know back in the day was to use alcohol and to use wine. And so they were making wine mainly for medicinal purposes. But a lot of these patients that came through the hospital happened to be, you know, rich people because they're the ones who could afford that kind of 24-hour care back in the day. And so as a thank you for the ones that survived and uh, thank you even if some passed, but the families were just grateful for the support that they received over the years, Hospice received a donation of, you know, ridiculously great vineyards all the way from Grand Echezou, you know, in Côte de Bonne to the other side of Burgundy. So it's just such a small little crystal to see all of the different regions and all of the different um, areas in Burgundy. I think Hospice in, by itself did about 20 different Chardonnays from different vineyards parcels all over Burgundy and about 35 different Pinots. So it was my first you know, single vineyard wine experience. And it, it was uh, amazing. It was great. The The winery was unique because they were definitely very traditional, as Burgundy tends to be, but they had an aspect of modern winemaking to it. So there was a very strong uh, focus on sanitation, for example, which I found, you know, they're a little more lax about it in the rest of Burgundy. There was a focus on extraction. There was a lot of kind of technology being used to understand it. But the most fascinating part is all of these wines that get made, the lots get auctioned in the third week of November. And they usually get picked up by negociants or people that, you know, want their own label on a hospice to bone wine. And the actual hospital ends up keeping only 15% of the production of the vintage, which they use, which they sell her and they use it to continue this uh, money, uh, I mean, auction uh, fundraising process, essentially. And so and we can't go there if we're sick and, and drink Grand Echezel? No, not anymore. Oh, <laughs> <it's too bad. laughs> I know. Someone needs to bring that back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, th oh, what an education in terroir. I mean, to, to to that that must have really informed your your sense of what place does to wine wine flavors and and textures and uh, I can't think of a better uh, better example. Absolutely, absolutely. It was such an intense discussion on the vineyard parcel, you know, the rootstock, the clone, uh, the exposure, the aspect. There were so many things about each separate parcel and wine that were being discussed that that was kind of my first understanding of what 
that kind of focused approach to winemaking can be and what it can mean. And just tasting the wines at the end of that harvest and to see just the spectrum of fruit expression that had been evolved, that had been pushed for, that had been meticulously tailored was, I mean, it was eye-opening. You know, that's kind of what started me on this process of what does the site dictate? and What mm-hmm. does the site tell you? Um, and in Burgundy, you know, it's a small, it's small if you really look at it from a region and acreage point of view. It's right. not a big acreage, but the fact that these subtle nuances result in such textured and complex and different wines was fascinating. It was a real learning experience for me. Wow. Yeah. Let's take a brief break. Winemaker's Journey is sponsored by Complant Wine, a partnership between my son Sam Barron and myself. Our mission is to make artisanal, moderate alcohol, single vineyard wines with vibrancy and finesse. Visit us at complantwine.com, C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T, wine.com. And by nakedwines.com, a passionate community of the world's best winemakers and wine drinkers, changing the way great wine is made. I'm proud to be among those winemakers. Look for the release of the 2019 Francophone Cabernet Sauvignon in 2021. And now back to episode seven. And then if you wanted to have a, uh, a master's degree in blending, what better place to go than cognac? It seems to me that blending distilled spirits, you, you have a much... Um, more direct feedback than you know you you blend a cabernet you don't really know what you've done until 10 years later when you can taste the wine after it's evolved Mm -hmm. but it seems like cognac you're getting direct feedback as you're doing it well it was it was uh, a little intimidating in the beginning because the focus is different when you're blending for spirits you're blending to achieve consistency of course Whereas with winemaking, you know, of course, you're you're trying to achieve a certain style and a certain expression, but you're, you know, as a winemaker, and, and Dan, you know this, you know, you want that vintage to speak through the bottle as well. Right. So. Yes, it's unusual. Uh, I think wine is unusual in the scent in commercial products in that we really are celebrating the specificity of a vintage. Whereas if you're making coffee or tea or a lot of commercial beverages, co- uh, chocolate, cocoa, mm-hmm. you're actually trying to even out the differences from suppliers from year to year. You're trying to... to um, what's the word mask though Mm -hmm. maybe not mask but balance them your blending is to have the acidity and the flavors be the same from year to year and you're saying that's more what you're doing with cognac with cognac yeah because you cannot have a vintage to vintage difference you know your product is appreciated in the market based on the consistency so even with cognac and or spirits for example for example lefroig whiskey always needs to have that more smokier charcoal kind of uh, flavor profile that it does whereas um, say an XO cognac would have more of those whiskey lactones or uh, oak based flavors in them and what where that balance lies between the distilled spirits and what you do as the aging process so it was a very it was a 
it was a different mindset altogether. You know, a friend right. of mine very recently said, um, winemaking is basically trying to capture time in a bottle. And I didn't real, uh, realize the significance of that because uh, up until recently, because I used to find remembering about vintages very difficult. You know, when you start out in the industry and you're in a room and suddenly people are talking about, oh, but 2008 in Bordeaux was like this versus in Burgundy. And I was just... I couldn't wrap my head around it, you know, early on in my career about how do you how do you possibly remember what happened in that year? But just in, in the past few years that I've, you know, been doing this full time and I mean I remember and everything that happened <laughs> in that in that vintage. You know, every vintage is defined by these set of incidents that kind of ended up leading you to the product you put in in the bottle, whether it's within eight months, whether it's within 12 months or 18 months. And so for me, that aspect of wine has been the most fascinating by far. Yeah. I had that uh, revelation with um, Martine Saunier. You know who Martine is? Oh, yeah. yeah. She invited me to uh, have lunch with her and Robert Parker because she was not in good relation with Robert Parker and at that time I was <laughs> so she thought I would kind of be the bridge yeah. and I was essentially ignored the whole lunch <laughs> I mean they hit it off great but she had brought this 1953 Burgundy and I remember sitting there saying my goodness I mean I can taste how the fruit got ripe I can see what the approach was in the fermentation and the extraction I can I can this is a message in a bottle from someone who's probably long dead. Mm -hmm. um, and that, that, that has always stayed with me, you know, that, that we're, we're passing along these messages in the bottle. And we have the privilege, we have the luxury of being able to celebrate this seven or eight months that happens in a certain place on planet Earth um, and to try to capture it and preserve it and pass it along uh, to the consumer, so that's 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 a privilege that's very different than than most people in uh, in the beverage industry. Mm -hmm. And I actually have a great story um, about this concept of time and and how the beverage kind of speaks through to it. So, when I was in uh, Burgundy, I had just started trying to develop my skills for wine descriptions. You know how. What is my style or what is my perception? How do I like to describe wines in a way that when I look back at my notes, you know, I have a clear understanding of that beverage or almost like a memory of what that beverage was. And so uh, the way I started doing that was I would put an adjective or an emotion that I was feeling while drinking that beverage as well. And um, I went to, I pestered, Chef Mass at Hospice de Bone. Since the day I came in, I said, I have to go taste at Romani Conti. Like, you have to take me to DRC. I mean, I, I'm in Burgundy. How can I not go taste at DRC? So, you know, being the uh, French man that he was, he was always had his sarcastic humor. And But at the end of harvest, I did, in fact, get to go with him to uh, Romani Conti. So, during that week of the Hospice de Bonne auction, because, you know, everyone from the trade industry is there, everyone from the media is there, um, all of the different wineries open, they do like an open the cellar event, and DRC did the same, and I got to go and we tasted 
the 2011 vintage, of course, they're fresh as the newest barrels that were going through malolactic at that time. We tasted the 2010 vintage just to see, you know, what a little bit of age does. And then once that tasting is, d- I mean, I'm just shivering in my pants, this whole tasting. I'm like, what is, what am I doing? I'm a kid from Mumbai. Like, wha- how, how am I tasting with all of these people? But at the end of that tasting, a lot of the other members left and kind of, you know, the inner circle of these Burgundy winemakers was left. And because my ride was my boss, I got to hang out with legends, essentially. And he walked us um, to the back of his cellar and started just, you know, opening older. They, l- I mean, in Burgundy, they love opening older bottles. And so we had a 72, we had a 65, we had a, I don't even remember, the 50. But then we had the last bottle that night was a 1945 Grand Echezu DRC. And I remember I wrote down all the descriptors for it. And at the end of it, because I was just, you know, couldn't even believe that I've had an opportunity to taste a unicorn wine like that. I Mm. wrote freedom as my expression without really not, without knowing anything. It was just what I was feeling. I was just so elated at that point. A year-ish later, when I was in New Zealand, I was reading Wine and War, which is you know a book that, yes, that talks about um, how wine in, in different ways influenced the oh. unrest in, in Europe and eventually kind of created segues during World War II. And I read about the 1945 vintage and what it meant for the French farmers because they finally got... You know, they weren't trying to stash bottles away from the Germans when they were under attack. And it was the vintage that marked the end of the war and the start of a new era for them. And a lot of them described their wines as freedom. And so for me, when those two things just, you know, kind of got put together, I had I hadn't made that connection in my head. But I remember just sitting in that grass patch in New Zealand just with goosebumps when I realized the connection between the two. So, um, yeah, well, you're right, absolutely right. We are trying to encapsulate time in, in a bottle, essentially. Yes, yes. So let's get into a little more uh, frequent times. So, so at some point along this path, you accepted a job at Dalavale. I did. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and no, what was your role there? Cellar um, master, enologist, viticulturalist. But when I li- l- read the list of what you did, it sounds like you were doing everything. Well, no. Nauko is uh, you know, a, a very generous person, and uh, it's a small team with that works at that estate. And so when you work at a small family business like that, you know, your day sometimes means you're doing things all over the place. It could be property management, it could be vineyard scouting, it could be just pressure washing the cellar. There's just so many smaller aspects that you know you don't have dedicated crews to do. And so um, I, I got a chance to do everything there and I'm very grateful for that opportunity. And s- you were, and Andy was a consulting winemaker? No, he was the winemaker. Oh, he was the winemaker. Yeah, and okay. Michelle was our consulting, or is still their consulting winemaker. I see. Yes. I see. Yeah. She's talking here of Andy Erickson and Michelle Roland. So how would you characterize what you learned uh, from, from that, uh, that dynamic duo? Um, everything. Uh, you know, a lot. 
not just from Andy and Michelle. I mean, if I remember the first time sitting down tasting with Michelle, I was just quiet as a mouse because I just wanted to <laughs> absorb all of the information that I could. Um, Andy is very approachable. Or you know, he's one of those people that you can approach him with a question and he's happy to talk to you about it. He, again, like Linda, is very cool. You know, is not a very reactive person and so you know when things happen like a heat spike or uh, an overspray in the vineyard or a barrel fell down and rolled out you know things happen at a winery but he's just always so level-headed and just so calm about things and the one thing he always said was Priya remember wine is a living beverage and so if it doesn't taste good one day you don't need to freak out just come back and taste it in a week maybe a month and you know it will be what it will be. And for me, that was uh, a huge uh, learning in patience because I think as a winemaker, you have to learn to be patient. And we've all had those moments where we taste one of our wines and say, oh my God, what have I done? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you have to be led away and come back a week later. <laughs> and and you know, I, I realized just the, uh, the caliber of the fruit that we were processing through the facility. And so... If there was a tank that smelled, you know, even slightly reductive, my reaction would be, Andy, we, you know, was when we taste, we've got to, we got to go back and taste this tank. And so just to learn that aspect of we're at the end of it, farmers and nature is going to do what nature does. Uh, that was an, an important learning for me. Yeah. That so. And that's a great, a great mantra. You know, wine is a living thing, mm -hmm. uh, a living beverage. Um so that takes us to your current position at, at Signorello. And so this is your third vintage? No, uh, my second vintage. Second vintage. Yeah, 2020 will be. Yeah. I, I joined early last year. Great. And uh, so so it's a f was founded by Ray Raymond Sr. Mm -hmm. um, and so now uh, Ray, uh, did Raymond Sr. pass away? Is he still still around? He did. Uh, he unfortunately passed in the early 2000s. And um, so one of our wines, the Padrone Cabernet Sauvignon, is named after him. His nickname was Padrone because, ah. uh, you know, he was a larger-than-life Italian uh, personality. And so everyone around, not just Napa, but the Bay Area where he spent a lot of his life uh, called him Padrone. He drove a 1960 yellow Corvette that we actually still have at the property and the license plate on it also says Padrone. So um, that's our flagship Cabernet Sauvignon now. Nice. Yeah. And stylistically, it's a, it's a bit of a shift from, from the Dallavalle style, uh, wouldn't you say? I mean, I mean, I think of Celia and, and, and you're working with Steve Mathiason in the vineyards. A little more restrained style than than uh, what Michelle and Andy are doing. Would you agree with that? I was referring there to consulting winemaker Celia Welch and Steve Mathiason, who is the viticulturist at Signorello. Yes, I think so. Uh, I also think that there's a very big difference in sight between the two different wineries. That dictates a lot of that fruit expression. Uh, Dollavalle, with it being located on that eastern Oakville hillside, is a very well-exposed, well-drained site, whereas Signorello, being on the southern tip of Silverado Trail, you know, kind of has a cooler climate because of the incoming San Pablo Bay winds. 
we see lesser extremes in temperatures and the site is very special because of how it's divided between the two aspects. So you have the western facing side which you see when you're driving on Silverado Trail and then we have our eastern side. So we get a lot more wines that are dominated by delicate florals, more herbal and spicier in, in character, whereas with um, Dolavale and that Oakville bench, that kind of plush fruit generosity just comes naturally to where um, they're located. Yeah, and I think uh, those of us who live it every day know that the further south you go in Napa, the cooler it is. Um, and sometimes we need to remind people outside the area. So, so, um, and it's also kind of a classic difference between Stag's Leap and, and Oakville. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, with Signorello, we are not located in an Appalachian uh, yet. Uh, maybe there will be one so in the future. So are you south of Stag's Leap? We are south of Stag's Leap, and we are just a little short of Oak Knoll. So we kind of lie in just a general Napa Valley and Appalachian. In the Signorello uh, Appalachian. In the Monopole, yes. <laughs> <laughs> And and we can't talk about the vineyards without uh, when you talk about the eastern slope, the the fires in 2017. Mm-hmm. Were the vineyards actually damaged as well? No, and uh, that was a big reason for Ray's announcement of rebuilding. You know, within a few hours of when the winery burned down, so he was actually in uh, Vancouver when those fires happened, and he was only able to come down about 48 ish hours after the event had passed and when he came to the property and saw of course most importantly that no one had been injured or hurt um, the one thing that he noticed right away was that the vineyards were perfectly fine we lost I think it was five vines because a fence fell over on them but there was no fire damage there was no heat damage essentially to the vineyards and the vineyards are uh, extremely important for Ray because of the age that we have the Chardonnay that we have on the estate was originally planted in 1980 so it's some of the older Chardonnay for that area of Napa and all of our reds were planted in 1992 so you know a good age on the vineyard um, and when he saw that there wasn't really any damage for it he just did what he does best which is you know put the next step forward and he announced plans to build uh, i think it was a big moment for napa i remember being uh you know in in napa during those uh, days and it, it, it kind of put a pretty big damper on harvest really you know we were at that peak point where the light at the end of the tunnel <laughs> was slowly starting to come through and then to be just shut down for five days in that area and not have power or even access and be completely evacuated from your wineries. I mean, I don't think Napa has seen anything like it. And then to have uh, someone like Ray, who just lost his whole winery and uh, physical structures on the property, announced right away that he was going to rebuild. I think it was uh, it was uh, very inspiring for a lot of people in the valley. And I can speak from firsthand experience, having uh, lived through the fire at Silver Oak. Uh, mm-hmm in 2006 and yeah. the rebuild it's amazing what how much better the winery will be yeah. <laughs> because you bring all those years of experience to the design and you do the things that you didn't know you should have done I- the first time and and also you know how we make wine continues to evolve um it, it you'll you know 
five years from now, you look back and say, you know, that was the best thing that ever happened. It's very hard to say when it's happening. You know, it's funny because Ray says the same uh, thing. He says, of course, I was very shocked and absolutely devastated when he heard about the incident. But the wineries that started in that early you know, 70s into the 80s in Napa, they started out as small family businesses. And that's what Signorella was as too. His father purchased the property as a retirement uh, option for himself. He just didn't want to live in San Francisco. His partner used to stable horses at the property. And when Ray Sr. would come out to check on the horses, he just absolutely fell in love with that part of Napa Valley. And so he bought it and built a home, which then slowly became a storage space, which then slowly became a tank farm, which then slowly became a small barrel room, which then slowly became a tasting room. And when you grow like that, you kind of grow with what's best in the moment, you know? Yeah. And there's not a lot of focus on, well, what about, what were you, what were you going to do in 10 years? So Ray says... And how is the product going to flow from the fermentation room to the barrel room to the bottling line and all of those logistical things just... Absolutely. Yeah. And so now he... He says, he's like, I'm just so excited because all of these years of walking around and wishing, ah, we should have put the crush pad over here and we should have aligned this tank, you know, with this guy. And, and now we get to do it the right, right way from the beginning. So I know we yeah, had, you know, the original <laughs> Silver Oak had, had the crush pad on the southwestern side of the wine. So it was in the afternoon sun <laughs> all day long. And that was one of the first things we said, let's put the crush pad on the northeastern side, you know. Yeah. Uh, and you're working with Taylor and Lombardo, who designed, uh, did the design of the Silver Oak Oakville. So yep. um, they have a lot of great experience. Um, and uh, I, I, did you figure uh, when you started your career as a winemaker that, construction was going to be uh, one of one of the things you you know who who anticipates all this right no and uh, my sister started you know she started uh, studying to become an architect and got her degree and now she's doing construction management so pouring over those drawings you know just happened to be an aspect of my life because I was constantly seeing her working on all of these different plans and so I had just a tiny bit of knowledge about a few terms here and there but the first uh, excitement into this came in Roger Bolton's winery design class so when he started talking to you and you know kind of going through slides of different wineries and how one setup worked for what they were trying to achieve versus would not have worked for a different st other style of winemaking it just made so much sense to me and so um, even at Dollar Valley when I was there, uh, Nauco chose to build the new barrel building during the time that I was there. So a huge part of the five years that I was there was three years of planning and planning and more planning and then, you know, figuring out when the next thing went wrong, how you're going to change. And we built that barrel building while I was there and it was an incredible experience so rewarding to see all of those ideas and plans that you have on paper now actually go up and create something. So when uh, when I got this opportunity to interview with Ray and I realized that it came along with the design of a new winery, I mean, it, it's so exciting. It really is. That's great. Yeah. That's great. So speaking of, of fires, and uh, I mean, we need to talk about uh, 
literal current events because as we sit here talking, <laughs> uh, there are two fires working this uh, today. Uh, well, it w we are doing this interview on um, Monday, uh, August 17th, and yesterday uh, we had uh, lightning and rain and, and even this morning. This morning and and yeah. so we have some lightning started fires uh, and maybe wind, maybe uh, power lines. I know that's been a factor too, but we have one working in various and one um, up on uh, Lake by Lake Hennessy up on Sage Canyon Road. So we keep our fingers crossed that we're we're not dealing with smoke taint and uh, and our our hearts go out to any anyone who's uh, whose property is threatened at this point. Yeah, I mean. There's really not much you can do, right? When yeah. it, it's been hot, we've had a hundred plus degree weather for about five days now. I mean, we'll see how high it goes today, but it's been hot. It definitely has been more of a drought year kind of, you know, growing condition from the beginning, starting with the lower rainfall in the winter time. And so I was just keeping my fingers crossed that this wouldn't happen. And as I said, you know, when I walked in, my day started out with trying to assess for heat damage because I thought we'd have a little bit of sunburn after it hit 116 over the weekend. And it uh, before I walked into your office, it I was just trying to see the direction that the smoke was going in to make sure that it's not coming close to Signorello. But, you know, we'll see what, what happens and fingers crossed. Hopefully there isn't a lot of damage to people, most importantly, and to property and you know um harvest kind of continues smooth sailing fingers crossed and as you alluded to with linda and andy um we st we need to stay calm yeah and <laughs> we need to uh remember wine is a living beverage yeah. and uh figure out what to best do that's that's what we do as winemaking professionals so yeah um yeah well, uh, thank you so much for this this time. Uh, this has been a fascinating hour, and um, I think uh, the listeners will be very uh, intrigued with your story and uh, all your insights. So thank you so much, Priyanka. Oh, thank you, Dan. Thank you for having me. I mean, this has been a little fangirl moment for me, if you will, <laughs> because I heard you speak in 2010, I think, it was, or maybe it was early 2011 when you came out for the Van Van 90X class, you know, the barbecue seminar. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, and so you've definitely been a winemaker that I've known about and looked up to for a number of years. So to have a chance to sit down with you, it's been really incredible. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. This is Daniel Barron. Thank you for tuning in to Episode 7 of The Winemaker's Journey. Please check the show notes for further details. This concludes Season 1 of The Winemaker's Journey. I hope you enjoyed listening. If you have questions or comments, please address them to me at daniel at complantwine.com. That's D-A-N-I-E-L at C-O-M-P-L-A-N-T-W-I-N-E dot com. Look for Season 2 to begin in January 2021 with my interview with the legendary winemaker of Chateau Petrus, Jean-Claude Barraway. Stay safe and stay healthy. See you 2021.